Hey, it's Bao. This is Coffee with Bao. This is a series where I chat over coffee with people who are doing cool stuff in music, entertainment, business, pop culture, and more. Specifically, I like to focus on topics of cultural identity, creative process, and personal growth. Um, and since this is one of our very first episodes, I'd really love it if you can leave me some feedback in the comments or contact me at coffeewithbao.com. Let's meet our guest. Today, today I'm hanging out with somebody whose spicy dance moves you've probably seen on stage with the Bao Band. He is a film and television composer, music instructor, and entrepreneur. He's been carving out his own unique and very tedious path in Los Angeles over the past few years as a going from a touring musician to a musical gear demo guy. <laughs> and now he runs his own private instruction business, Music Teacher. And he's been composing music for film and TV for how many years, Jesse? Oh, about three years I've been doing the film and TV music. Well, here's my friend and collaborator, Jesse McInturf. <laughs> well, pleasure to be here. I'm, uh, I'm glad we've got the coffees, too. We decided to go with the classic choice for the season of pumpkin spice lattes. Thank you so much for picking up our pumpkin spice lattes. It's only correct for the spoopy season. <laughs> That's so funny. Okay, so let's introduce you so people get to know you a little better. Mm -hmm. You have been in L.A. for how many years? I just crossed the seven-year barrier. Damn. Mm-hmm. You are from a small town in Minnesota, right? Yes, I grew up in a small town called Blue Earth, Minnesota that is less than 3,000 people. And it's not a suburb, it's just a little dot of 3,000 <laughs> people. Uh, recently you were there and you told me a little bit about kind of discovering some of your family history through the archives there? Yeah, uh, so you know, we were back there, my girlfriend and I went back for a couple weeks just you know, the joy of the uh, the lockdown and working remotely mm -hmm. has been that, you know, well, you can travel. So we headed back up there to hang out with our folks before the weather got bad and went to the local archives. And and we were looking through the, the museum and I was finding all this and discovered, like, I didn't even realize that, like, I was, like, sixth generation from this county. <laughs> like, crazy. my family had settled there in, like, the mid-1800s and, and it was just purely through the land grant. And wow. uh, yeah, it was, so it was like this this weird realization of like how deeply connected my family was to this little town that I just grew up hating. <laughs> and just, you know, and I went running, screaming away as soon as I could. Um, you weren't especially like a musical person as a child, right? You kind of discovered it in your, like later on? Yeah, I mean, so I had like, when I was a kid, I did like uh, choir and the, re mm -hmm. the required music classes. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I didn't like listen to music like for fun or anything like that. And then it wasn't until I was a teenager I got into it. And it was like right after I turned 17 is when I got my first guitar. And then I just had this like click moment. And it was this just like, aha, where I was like, wow. oh, this is the thing I do. And I just dove into it and then, <laughs> you know, ended up going to college in a town called Rochester, Minnesota, which most people have heard of because that's where the Mayo Clinic is from. Uh -huh. um, and IBM is also there. My family wanted me to go there so I could study computer science. And then at the last second, I was like, no, 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 I'm going to get a music degree. So I that see. was, uh, you know, there have been definite moments in my career path where I've regretted that. But ultimately, <laughs> I, I know I made the right choice. And like, it's all worked out very, very well. Look at you now. Your life is so glamorous. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like, it, it definitely is like, I have those moments of like, wow, I could be 
I could be making a lot more money, but I'm absolutely positive it's been a much more interesting path doing it this way. Yeah, did that make you like a pretty cool teenager to be like a guitar guy? Oh, absolutely not. Abs <laughs> unquestionably not. Like I always tell like my music students, I'll be like, no, 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 like I'm a guitar nerd. Like you know that like that nerdy <laughs> mentality, like what defines a nerd? It's somebody who's like really obsessive to the point where it's no longer cool. Like the topic they're into could even be cool but they're so into it that it's no longer cool. <laughs> and I, I, I took that mentality and just applied that to guitar. Nerd. Mm-hmm. Nerd ass. Okay, so you said you've been in LA for about seven years, and I think like a lot of us, you've been trying to find your way to use music to make a living. And um, <clears throat> I wanna spend the bulk of our conversation talking about that journey mm -hmm. to where you are, but, um, Right now you're doing your own private business as a music instructor and um, also composing music for film and TV. And before we started filming this, we recorded a little tour of Jesse's studio, mm -hmm. which I wanna play for you guys right now. Hey, I'm Jesse McInturf, and I'm a Los Angeles-based television composer and music educator, and we're hanging out here in my home studio. Now the whole home studio is built around the centerpiece of my laptop and studio desk. Got my keyboard, got logic. This is where all the magic is happening. 99% of what I'm doing is just in the laptop. But the things I need that aren't in the laptop, I've got my pedal board right underneath here and that's going straight in. But some projects also require even better guitar sounds than that. And so from that, I come over to my guitar center wall as my friends always like to make fun of me for. Now this is 20 plus years of guitar collecting. It is a bit ridiculous, but it's also just been what I enjoy spending all of my free time doing. From there, I grab a guitar and I come back to my amp wall. I've got a couple amps here. I've got a classic peg and my Fender Blues Junior, and both of these go into my isolation cab, which is here to keep the guitars quiet while I record them. That stated, it's still way too loud, and I try to make sure that I get everything done before 6 p.m. And then I've got a whole bunch of other just toys that I've collected over the years, like a synthesizer, my pedals, my various microphones. So that all comes back to here. And the main thing I've been spending a lot of my time on that isn't composition lately has been Zoom and Skype classes. Ever since the lockdown began, that's been where most of my bread has been buttered. So I've got the camera, I've got the spotlight, and it all comes down to, to here and so I can provide the best teaching experience. And I just love adding that little extra bit of uh, production value that I can do because to me, music education has always been one of the centerpieces of what I do. And as much fun as performing is, at the end of the day, I find it even more satisfying when I have a student that brings a song to me and they go, I love this, I have no idea what's going on. And when you can start to deconstruct that and explain to them what's happening inside the song and you watch that aha moment happen, or I go, this isn't magic, there are methods to this. That to me is the most satisfying part of music. Way cooler than being on stage in front of a thousand people. That's neat, but you know, you don't affect those people's lives other than that moment. So, thank you for coming by my studio. Glad we got to check it out. Dang, MTV Cribs, yo. <laughs> uh, Jesse, you have a website where people can reach you. Can you show people where to go? Yeah, it's jessemacinturf.com, so just J-E-S-S-E-M-C-I-N-T-U-R-F-F, -S -S -E as in Frank, .com. <laughs> Two Fs, huh? Mm-hmm, that's the, <laughs> the weird Scottish last name that uh, I'm actually not Scottish at all, but uh, just got. <laughs> Insane. Okay, so I think that um, your effectiveness as an educator, which is primarily what you're doing now, has a lot to do with your ability to communicate simply, like 
complex things or abstract things into normal human language. Hundred percent, hundred percent. Before you started your own music teaching business, though.、Um, You had worked for a few other music teaching organizations, right? Yeah, yeah. So I had started out.、Uh, my very first teaching job I'd gotten when I was like twenty was just I was actually working at a coffee shop, and <laughs> there was a guy who was a drummer in a punk band in the local town. His name was Aaron Domeyer, and he comes in. And he was buying a latte, and he goes, "I was like, oh yeah, like you teach." You teach music, right, dude? And he's like, "Oh yeah." He's like, "Our guitar teacher just quit." You like, you should apply. <laughs> That's awesome. And I was like, "Yeah, yeah, I should apply." So that was a place called Scheidel's Music、uh, mm. in Mankato, Minnesota, just this little college town that I was living at after I'd graduated. I taught there for a couple years. I ended up joining some bands, bouncing around. I like I taught at a couple guitars in Minneapolis, like、uh, Twin Town Guitars. Um, and then came out to Los Angeles and very quickly fell in with、uh, School of Rock here in Hollywood and was actually the head guitar instructor for School of Rock Hollywood for about four or five years. Wow! And then you worked with、um, Kid Row.、Mm-hmm. Yep. And then there was a, another company that I was taught with、uh, briefly after that called Kid Row, and they were another group lesson. Uh, primarily, so they were aimed at like a younger crowd and like a very low entry point. So the idea was like we're providing everything,、mm, you just、I、need、see. to show up, yeah. And rather than like you know, School of Rock expects the kids to like have their own guitars and already、mm. have some sort of like you know appreciation for it. Versus Kid Row is just like you don't need to spend a dollar, like you just sign up for the classes and here you go. And then you went high tech with Fender Play. Yes, so I I was briefly <laughs> teaching for Fender Play as well. And I was doing their online lessons.、Uh, I ended up doing. I, they brought, brought me on just for helping out with some of the metal stuff. And、uh, to be completely honest, like after I filmed that stuff with them, I think they told me that they went a different direction. And、mm. they ended up because the issue they were having was that so much of the metal stuff was so difficult. To wrap around, and they were trying to like get that going with such a beginner crowd. Ah,、uh, yeah. And so they were like, yeah, they filmed like all these metal lessons, and then they were like, you know what, this is just a notch too far for、yeah. what we're doing. How do you think your experiences at these other places prepared you or like affected how you wanted to formulate your own business? I think. I mean, you see when so teaching. Is like my experience with teaching has always been that you learn how to effectively teach by not effectively teaching. Huh. And and so you can see like it's the same thing as like musical collaboration. When you're in a room with people and you're writing a song, like you know somebody will go like, oh well, what if we did this chord progression?、Mm-hmm. Or what if we did this part? And you'll play it and you'll watch everyone in the room go like, oh okay, yeah okay. <laughs> and then and then every once in a while you hit it and you'll watch everyone be like, oh dude, yes,、yeah. that was the thing. And that's exactly how it works with teaching music. Interesting. Yeah, it's like you would. I would explain a concept to a class, and especially when I was doing group classes like School of Rock, and so it's me and ten, twelve-year-old kids, and I go, "All right, ACDC works like this." And when you see blank stares,、mm. you go, "Okay, that didn't work. How about if we explain it like this?" It's like ultra reading the room.、Uh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's like take reading the room up to this level because, like. What's very fortunate about music is that it's inherently cool. Like there's this like very cool、so. thing to it, and so it's really easy to get kids excited about it.、Mm-hmm. And so if you're teaching this to kids and they're not excited about it, that means、right. the problem is you, not the material. Right, right. You know, it's like if you were teaching accounting, I could understand where that maybe wouldn't apply. <laughs> But like if you're trying to show somebody how to play a Van Halen song and they look bored, you're the problem here. Interesting. <laughs> like, okay, so music is magical. Everybody wants to do it, but 
I don't think most musicians want to start or run their own business. <laughs> what, what have been like some of the more challenging things about you going on your own and, and actually doing this business thing? So I think the most challenging part for it was convincing myself to do it in the first place. Oh. You know, because once, like, when you're looking at that, and especially I think this is anybody who comes from a working for companies, and then the idea of jumping into doing something freelance and mm. being your own boss, like, that is, it's a terrifying jump. It of, really is. <laughs> yeah, like that moment of like, okay, I'm going to be the guy in charge of this. Now, like, I wasn't worried about like, oh, what, you know, am I going to sleep in till noon and then like, you know, like play video games all day and then be like, oh crap, I have to work. Like, I've always been self-motivated in that regard, so that was never a concern for me. But the concern was just like, what do I do if nobody comes with Yeah, sure. What do I do if I can't get any students? What do I do when the students I do have start to age out of this? Because that's the other thing about music instruction is that like, there's a pretty finite period where it's like you, people get to like 17, 18, and then they're going to move off to college. They're going to move off to whatever. So, you know, this isn't like an, an infinite. It's not like, you know, being. I'm it's not to, like dealing drugs. Yeah. <laughs> where you got a client for forever. Yeah, exactly. It's like, uh, and so realizing that like, okay, I'm just going to have to accept that these are the inherent problems in this. Yeah. And, and I dove into it, and I found that since I did that, like, I have just, I, all of my concerns were vastly overblown. Huh. Cool. You know, I think that the best thing is like, as long as you're being an effective teacher and you're providing something where the kids are enjoying it, like that's, then they tell their friends. Yeah. And then, and they're, and as long as the kids are working on it, like the, you know, the biggest people that are, are, that notice this are the parents. Let's talk about that because like, I feel like that is a good perk about your job. Like the, um, Ability to build relationships, not with not only with the students, but also like just connecting through other people around mm -hmm. the industry and around Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. Like, um, has that been like a big deal for you to be able to expand your horizons? Hundred percent. Like, and it, it's so funny because like I, I don't like to talk about this to people because it can seem like schmoozy. <laughs> yeah. But like, but you know, I had been teaching for probably three or four years, mm. and one day I had this, and it was actually related to, um, well, all right, so let me tell you, the full version of the story is, a couple years ago, I had had a toothache, and, and I was like, oh God, I have to do something about this. And I was looking at my finances, and I was going like, I am so broke. Like this, I, how am I gonna pay for getting this, like, this tooth fixed? And it kind of set in motion me being like, I was like, you have connections to all of these people. Like, you know, all these people in television. You've been wanting to compose for television for so long. Mm. How come you're not, like, you know, not necessarily getting work from these people, but you have access to just ask them questions. Mm. And you can just be like, hey, I'm interested in getting into this world. How could I do this? Because I am so poor. <laughs> And, and so that was actually the impetus that made me be like, okay, I'm going to start actually asking these people. And what I found was that really, really quickly, like, everybody was, like, more than willing to help. Hmm. You know, they were all like, oh, yeah. Like, you know, I built these relationships with these families over years. And I could just be like, hey, you know, if I wanted to, like, you know, who would I talk to about this or that? And they would go like, oh, it's this guy. That's awesome, dude. Yeah, that's really great. And I think that... Um People have a kind of like 
preconception about it being like schmoozy and then manipulative or whatever, but mm-hmm. th- it's like real relationships, real friendships, and they're like over years. You're not, you know, that's that's something you nurture on purpose that not only builds your business, but it builds your person. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, super important. Well, and I think part of it too is just recognizing like, you know, like there, there's a big, big difference between like, oh, you've got like a one-off gig and like, and I'm like, you know, and the whole time I'm like, oh, hey, by the way, I could do this for you. Hey, by the way, I could do this for you. Versus like, you know, oh, I've been dealing with this, I've been interacting with this individual for three or four years. And then I go, wait a minute, you have an expertise in XYZ and I don't know anything about that. And I, you know, and just by the nature of being in Los Angeles, it happened that most of the families I was working with are in some way involved in like television or entertainment. Yeah, interesting. So, like a lot of us in LA, it's and, and who want to do creative stuff for a living. There's a lot of like throwing stuff at the wall to see what sticks. Uh huh. <laughs> and um, you've been doing like a few different things over the past seven years here. Like you played guitar in a bunch of different bands. Mm-hmm. You, including the Bow Band, of course. Yeah. Um, Most celebratedly in the Bow Band. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think like the core behind all that is. Creative problem solving when things don't go your way, mm-hmm. and two, being persistent, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. Like I think, I mean, you know, I was I was talking with a friend of mine uh, a couple weeks ago who's a writer, and she was talking about you know working on a draft of a book and trying to contact a bunch of people with it. And I said to her, one of the best pieces of advice that I ever got, which is remember, it only takes one yes. Yeah. You know, you can get a thousand no's in this business, and you only need one person to go, yeah, 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 let's do this. And, and then you're off and running. And it's, you know, like there's, you have to have, I think this is part of what leads to a lot of people's negative uh, perceptions of a lot of musicians, is that you have to have a certain headstrong attitude because you have to believe that you're providing something that somebody would care about. Mm. And so you have to have that inner belief of like, no, 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 no. everyone who's told me no is wrong <laughs> and I'm right. And like, and there's just this pigheadedness that like, now obviously you can't let that get to you too much, but like the opposite end of that would, of course, be the people that are like become super like offended whenever they're told no, mm. you know, because you still have to be able to collaborate with people. Yeah. But you still but taking that and going forward and being like, OK, you know, this TV show, this TV show, this TV show all told me no. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go to the next one and I'm going to go. Here's what I can provide. You know, are you guys interested? And then eventually somebody goes, yeah, yeah, this has worked great for what we need. Like, thanks. That's awesome, dude. Uh, you also put out your own record uh, like a couple years ago. Yeah, yeah. Can you tell us about Wives? Yeah, yeah. Spell so, it too for us. V-V-I-V-E-S. Because I was trying to come up with something that was at least Googleable. because I felt like if you just typed in Wives, you, <laughs> that would probably just take you to like parts of the internet you don't want to be on. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly not in good company. Um, but yeah, so that was, so the Wives record was just, you know, I had played in all these like metal bands before that. And it was m- me wanting to do something that wasn't metal and mm. get out of that. And it also served the purpose of I'd never sang in a band before. Mm. So I was just like, cool, I'm going to try to learn how to sing. And then I was also like, you know, I'd always been recording stuff, but I'd never been mixing my own material. Or, uh, and so I was like, I'm just going to do everything. Yeah, I'm just going to do everything. And this is just going to be a thing I do for myself. And I don't care if anybody likes it. <laughs> if anybody hears it, if well, I, it doesn't matter to me what happens, I'm just going to finish this as a project for myself. And it took 
a lot longer than I expected it to. I probably started writing those songs in like 2015 and I put out the record at the end of 2017. And, um, you know, I was very fortunate. I got my buddy Anthony Berlich, uh, who uh, was the drummer for um, The Bravery, to play drums on that. Cool. And that was super fun to bring him in. And, you know, it's always, I'm sure you're familiar with this, but, like, it's so much fun when you work with, like, real high-quality musicians and you realize how easy it can be. Yeah. You know, where you're like, like oh, oh, it just works. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you're like, oh, you're an expert at drums. Like, I've been trying to think of a cool drum part for this that made sense. And for you know months and then you come in in two minutes and they're like oh it's this that i think that was my experience with uh beautiful things when i let you guys just do your thing like because you know like trusting the other person as a professional mm -hmm. and as an expert on their craft is like so important just to let them do things i think you run into issues when you start wanting to like micromanage and be the creative force behind someone else's creativity. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's hardcore. Well, I think that's also just like, I mean, I think that's a, a big problem across, not even in the arts, just across the field mm. of like people like not knowing when to just go like, okay, this is your thing. I'm gonna just like trust you. Yeah, dude. You know? <laughs> okay, so we met when um, I think you were demoing something at NAM or something. Yes, it was, I remember exactly what it was. It was the uh, System 10 wireless from Audio-Technica. <laughs> That's right. I must say, you are like an incredible pitch man. <laughs> and um, I'm curious about that part of your journey to like, you know, using music as to make a living. Um, like what were some of the more fun adventures with product demoing? Well, so that one, the Audio-Technica one, you know, it's so fun. I still stay in touch with uh, Gary from Audio-Technica. And, and those guys were such a cool crew to, to work with. And so what had happened is many years ago, um, so briefly in like the mid-2000s, in 2007 and 8, uh, Best Buy was trying to start a musical instrument store. And if you've never heard of that, it's because they opened it right before the 2008 crash. Oh, wow. And I was working at the flagship one of those in Minneapolis uh, at the time. And because I was working at the flagship store, all these companies, all the vendors would come through our store to chat and train everybody. And I struck up friendships with a bunch of these guys mm. from that from working there. So like Gary, uh, Gary Boss from Audio-Technica, I think it was like Paul from Spectrasonics, um, just all these other like big name companies and everybody was giving me their numbers and then I'd email them and send them, you know, the band I was playing with at the time. And, and then some of these turned into like years long friendships. Yeah. So then fast forward to 2013, I move here. Uh, I'm just working as a computer repair guy at the time trying to get my feet under me. And I get a call from Gary Boss at uh, Audio-Technica and he's like, hey, I remember I saw on Facebook that you just moved to LA. We need, we've got this new system coming out. I know you know how to talk to people. Do you think you could do this for us? Fantastic. And I was so broke at the time. <laughs> I was like, I will do anything you need. Yeah, dude. I think that really ties back to what I said about being a, reading the room and being a good communicator. <clears throat> because like, I was sold on that product. <laughs> <laughs> as soon as I saw you talk about it, it's just like translating all of this abstract stuff into like, what does it mean for you as a person? Like, mm -hmm. That makes so much sense. So currently you've been, actually, the other part of that I want to mention is just being a decent person so that people like you and want to keep in touch with you. <laughs> well, I think, I mean, you know, like it's so easy to get so distracted from that. And like, 
you know, like I know in my own life, I get like distracted with these gigantic concepts of like, you know, I'm trying to accomplish this. I'm trying uh-huh. to go to this place. I'm trying to do that. And then I remind myself at the end of the day, it's like, you know, and, and like when I go back to my hometown, when I go back to like my little just shitsville town and, <laughs> and see these people, I'm like, at the end of the day, I'm like, I like just, I just like hanging out with people. And I think that that's, it's so easy to get so distracted from those things that kind of nourish your humanity like mm. that, where you're like, I have these grand ambitions mm. of which I have plenty. Yeah. But like, but then to also be reminded, it's like, you know what, like some of my favorite moments in my life are is like hanging out with my friends, sipping coffee and just talking shit. Yeah, dude. Well, this is good. This is good shit talking. right here. <laughs> <laughs> Let's take a little break. Hey, friends. Not sure if you know this, but I serve on the board of a nonprofit called the Slants Foundation. We're a volunteer-driven organization that provides resources, scholarships, and mentorship to Asian American creatives looking to incorporate activism into their art. We also produce events that feature these talented creators. Our last virtual concert helped over 500 people register to vote for the very first time. You can learn about and support the Slants Foundation by visiting theslants.org. Thanks, and see you soon. Let's get back to the show. Uh, lately, you've been having a lot more success on your composing job mm-hmm. or your compo- composing aspect of your job. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk about some of the highlights uh, of which shows you've been excited about getting some placements on? Yeah. So, like, I mean, the first big one that I got was uh, the History Channel was doing a show and it was called Kings of Pain. Mm. And it was about guys going around the world getting stung and bitten by animals. <laughs> and and I got sent the creative brief and they were like, hey, do you think you could write some music that just like, you know, is the feeling of pain? And I was like, yeah, totally. And then I sent off the stuff. I get an email back once again from like the music supervisor at the show. And they're like, we love what you're doing. Nice. They're like, can we keep using that? And like they ended up using like one of my songs I'd written as like the bite theme. Mm-hmm. So whenever somebody would get like, be like, ow, ow, like they're playing my song over that. <laughs> and like, that was like a really funny moment. And uh, like my girlfriend sent that to her mom. And her mom goes like, yeah, like that would just be some guy getting bitten. It would <laughs> like, and it would look really dumb if it didn't have that music. That's so funny. That's really great. That's like when Super Mario Brothers gets the star and it, that song comes on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which, uh, which, by the way, I've had to teach that song to students <laughs> a lot over the years. That's so cool. Um, what's been the most recent cool placement you've had? Uh, most recent cool placement? I've been ha- I had a bunch of stuff in the last season of Ghost Hunters. Ooh, spooky. Yeah, exactly. So that was really, really fun. And, uh, and it's just like, I always love getting those because, you know, like the part of music that you get into in a band versus the part of music you get into when you're doing stuff for television and film, the mindsets are so different. And I think most people have this misconception, myself certainly included, of you're like, oh, music for television. It's like big Hans Zimmer style, like, you know, epics. And like, it's this really driving thing. And you're like, no, like go watch a reality show. There is music constantly through that, but it's Mm -hmm. very subtle. And you learn that like, the, the hat you need to wear for writing music for to picture is so totally different. And, and the concerns and the things that they're worried about are totally alien to a band mindset. And then on top of that, you add in the fact that the turnaround time is so <laughs> fast. You know, it's like when you were like, how long did your last record take? 
Um, probably from March until June something. Mm. But some of those songs were like two, three years old. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, so two, three-year-old songs, and then you focused on it, and it took six months. Yeah. And versus when I get like one of these creative briefs sent to me, it's like, hey, we need stuff for this racing show. Can you have us 10 songs by Friday? Mm-hmm. And you're like, okay, well, it's Sunday. Uh, yeah, I can do that. Yeah. And, uh, but the thing that's so incredible about that is because you're under such an insane time crunch, you just, it's just pure creativity. You literally mm. don't have time to guess whether or not the idea is good. You're just like, yeah, cool. That works. Cool. Yeah, that works. Cool. That works. And then it really, in my experience, has helped with all of my other writing. Uh, just cause like, you're just like cranking through this stuff. And so you just learn to trust your own well of creativity. And then what's really fun is every once in a while you'll be writing something for like a TV show and I'll go, wait, that's way too good. <laughs> that's too good. That's too good for this show. And I'll just save it in a different folder and then I'll write that for like, give that to an artist down the road. <laughs> that's so awesome. So uh, I think a lot of that work has come from like building relationships and knowing people and being a decent, nice guy. <laughs> um, but a lot of it, you know, is being introduced to the concept of like a music library mm -hmm. and just putting a bunch of stuff in there and so that people can pull them up based on tagging or concepts or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, can you, for people who don't know what that is, can you give like a little summary of what music libraries are? Sure, so a music library would be a, it's just like a company that uh, they're the ones talking to the different TV shows. And they're going like, you know, like some show goes, hey, we need, you know, XYZ for our season. And this music library goes, we've got that and we've also got composers on staff. So then I will get like an email from the library and they go, hey, this show wants music in this vein. Mm. And, and so you just write as much as you can in the time frame, send it into them, but then the music library holds on to all that music as well. So then also down the road next time they, so like let's say you write this for, you know, Motorcycle-a-thon 2000, <laughs> you know, 2020. Yeah. And Motorcycle-a-thon doesn't really end up using anything you've, you like, or sorry, anything that you've written. They just, you know, for whatever reason, their, their, their editor wasn't feeling it. Uh -huh. Well, then when they go down the road to, you know, Drag Race-a-thon, mm. and that editor goes, wait a minute, I love all this. And so he grabs all that. So, like, you'll just have these moments of, like, you know, like, on a royalty check, something you wrote two or three years ago will suddenly get used by, you know, 90 Day Fiancé, that was the one I had, where, like, all of a sudden 90 Day Fiancé is using a song I wrote years ago, and I'm going, oh, cool, all right. yeah. If it works, it works. Yeah, exactly. It's not up to you, really. Yeah, exactly. So, And that's, I think, the big misconception is that when you're writing music for a lot of TV, you're writing the library music that is just, here's a creative brief, write something in the style of that. Mm -hmm. Now, what people normally think of this as is music to picture, which is like what like you know, like you know a film score would be, yeah. where they have a picture and they're writing music to back that up. Mm. Versus I'm not seeing anything. I'm not, you know, nobody's sending me a screener of a show. So is this where you want to spend most of your time in the near future? Or do you have other interests that you want to direct the composing work toward? You know, I, I, the thing I've been thinking about the most lately has been starting my own library. Because, oh. you know, I'm looking at this and I'm going, okay, I see how these libraries work. I see, you know, the what they're taking and like how they're paid and making their money. And I'm going... You know, like, this is not that hard. This is not that crazy of work. Like, somebody can, we can, you know, I could help out so many musicians I know because I think that's the thing that keeps so many people out of that kind of work 
is that they just you, they don't even know where to start. Mm-hmm. You know, they're just going like, oh my god, like I would love to write music for a reality show, but like I, you know, I live in Seattle. I live in you know Wisconsin. I don't know any of that, and I'm going well. I've got buddies who are great musicians who live in Seattle and Wisconsin and LA. Yeah, and I'm going like, well, I could put this together and get all these guys in on this. <clears throat> That's really interesting. Speaking of guys, like the we were talking about how important building relationships. Um, something that's been really cool about you is that you don't drink alcohol, and you are very comfortable like expressing that to people mm-hmm. uh, when when we hang out. What's been like the experience with that throughout the years? It, well, it's 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 it it goes all over the place because I've I've gotten every type of reaction you can imagine to that. <laughs> where it's like some people like the weirdest one is I've had people be like, "Oh, you don't drink? That's creepy," mm. and I'm like, "It's creepy that I don't drink." Like that's kind know. of a messed up thing to say because a lot of people don't drink because they have trouble controlling their drinking. Right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that was why that was that's the strangest one I've ever heard. <laughs> and like so for me it was just like my father had a lot of addiction problems. He was always very very open about that with me and he was and so when I was like a little kid he just sat me down one day and was like this has only brought me bad things. <laughs> yeah. Don't do this. And for whatever reason that just like stuck. Mm. And then as I got older and you know, it's like by the time I'm a teenager and I'm watching my friends drink in you know uh, their friend their mom's backyard, mm. and I'm like, I was like, this is I don't I don't need this. You don't need this. And then and then I go off to college and I start playing in bands and I'm seeing all these incredible musicians <laughs> who are just like a mess. And I'm going like, well, I, what we're already trying to do if we're like you know. If we're trying to be professional musicians, what we're already trying to do is so profoundly stupid. Yeah. So few people get to do this. <laughs> this is such an unbelievably competitive field. Like, why? I want every advantage I can have. And one of those, that's why I was like, I'm, I'm not going to do this. I don't want anything that's going to take that edge off. Mm. You know, I want to maintain, like, all of my wits about me and just ma- and keep moving forward on this. And and then as the years have went by, I've never I've never once been like, Oh man, you know, if I had been doing that, this all would have been better. <laughs> like, I, I guess I shouldn't say that. I do think that maybe some of my networking opportunities would have been slightly better because there is a lot of networking that happens, you know, at a bar. Yeah. But I don't think it's ever been. Well, we've hung out at bars. You don't have to drink at a bar. Totally, totally. Like, um, for people who are like trying to build up the confidence to live that way or like just to naturally express that to people in a social environment, mm-hmm. like, is there anything that you've learned that could be helpful for those people? I mean, I just, what I always do is I just tell people, like, you know, I, I never wanted it to be, like, a big thing that I didn't drink. I never wanted hmm. that to be, like, you know, something that I was putting out there into the world and that was, like, a, a <laughs> defining characteristic of who I am. To me, it was always just, like, people would go, hey, do you want a drink? And I go, oh, I'm good. I see. And I would just, like, and end of that. And if people would push, I'd just go, I don't drink. But I never wanted, I, to me, it was always about just being like, oh, no, 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 like, no big deal. And just keeping it as low key as possible. Interesting. That's so cool. Well, thanks for sharing that, because I, I know that's like not a normal topic of conversation for a lot of people. But I thought it would be helpful for some people who wanted to take that approach in their lives mm-hmm. to hear from you, too. Well, and I think that's always why I make it a point of just being like really straight up of like, no, like the like. You know, people are, are always scared to ask, like, oh, why? Mm. Why don't you drink? Because, you know, they're worried that it's like, oh, I was an alcoholic or I had something. And, and like, you know, like the whole thing, people think it's much more painful when I go, like, oh, my father had, like, a lot of addiction problems. Like, 
this was never really aware. I was never really aware of this until I was, you know, mm. well into my teen years that my family started being like, well, actually, yeah. the reason this, that, and that are like this is because of, you know, your father had all these problems. And, and so that's why I make a point of just being like, no, 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 like here it's really, the reason I don't do this is because of this really specific thing. Interesting. And it's like, and there's no shame in that. Where I'm just like, you know what? I saw what how bad this can go for some people. And like, all you need to do is look at my guitar center wall to know <laughs> that I'm like an obsessive type. <laughs> show, yeah, show yeah, the guitar yeah. Here, let's look. Yeah, oh. so there you go. Like, that's the proof that like, I clearly have no chill. Like, if I get into something, I'm just into it. And I know that about myself. And so that was another one of the many reasons where I was like, need to get into yeah, thinking yeah. like this is it's I'm probably gonna go bad <laughs> um so like I said earlier one of the main contributing factors to your success I believe is your ability to communicate and sense what people want to hear and how they want to absorb information so now as I'm creating a lot more content and some of it will be educational mm-hmm. um do you have any hot tips for me as a communicator? Ooh, I like that. That's a really good question. Hot, like, what would be the... So, so, I think, I guess, it comes down to what you're trying to put across would be my first question. So, for you, I would want to know what, when you talk about education, what direction are you trying to go with it? What are you trying to educate people with? Huh, I see. Yeah, I guess for me, it's technically how I accomplish things in order to push the concept of what I'm trying to convey. Mm-hmm. Like the ve- the big overarching concepts. Yeah. Well, I think the, the problem most people have with really big concepts is seeing how they impact in the, like, directly. I think you need to be able to draw a line between, like, all right, here's this overarching concept, and then here's how this actually applies to the real world. Yeah. And seeing yeah. directly that relationship of, like, you know, I would equate it to, like, people hear about something like music theory, and they're like, and this is a common idiot argument that I've heard over the years. <laughs> of like, oh man, I don't want to learn music theory. Like, I feel like that would interfere with my creativity. So that is very like the Steve Jobs approach. Instead of saying like this many gigabytes of storage, he says this many songs in your pocket, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah, how exactly. that translates. How this actually applies. And then I normally follow it up with, if you do have to show somebody something technical, like give it to them in a small bite. Huh. So like one of the things now, so another thing is that like I'm dyslexic and I, mm. I, uh, I, I like grew up with that. I was in special education when I was younger. And so I've always found that a lot of like ways that information was presented was really difficult for me to like wrap my head around, especially when I was first learning guitar. And so when I would teach to students, I've always thought that because I struggled with parsing that much information, I would try like just for my own sake, I would like bring it down into these really tiny chunks. Mm, I see. And I think that that's how I've learned. It just like, I'm like, well, I need this to be simple for me. And then it makes it easier for the kids to like wrap their head around. Yeah. And so like, you know, I'm like, okay, here's like a simple idea. And we're just repeating this. It's just this one simple thing happening over and over and over again. Mm. And it's like finding how you can chunk that information for somebody to wrap their head around. What about you? Like what are, what is like one of the main skills like personally or professionally Mm -hmm. where you in the next few months or whatever or years want to level up on and be better at what do i what i mean well you know what my biggest problem i think my (laughs) my biggest problem as a musician and really in all parts of my life is that is in just like that finishing details you know like where i'm like i will do i because i can take i can get so much of the information 
so much of what I want done, and it's taking it that last 5%. Hmm. You know, just like I, the things I screw up a lot are like, oh, I mislabel files when I send them to clients. Hmm. Oh, I, you know, like, oh, this song was a duplicate of that song, you know. Like, and so I try, I'm trying to be better with like, you need to label stuff better. Right. You right. need to spend more time confirming that this is all working out. What I've been doing is taking a final pass or one or two final passes as another person, mm -hmm. as the audience who, who will receive your files, mm -hmm. right? Like it's role playing. Like if I was this person and I just got this random ass email that is missing context, I'm not going to understand it. Yeah. So, um, I guess it's that final layer of role playing that before you ship anything, you should do to kind of confirm your assumptions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The other thing I've been doing lately and that I think helps me has been, I've been trying to be a lot better at like, okay, I finished this at 11.30 at night. And I'm like, don't hit send. <laughs> exactly. Just like, <laughs> just send it at eight in the morning. Like nobody's gonna work on it tonight. And then tomorrow when you're looking at this in the morning with your coffee, you're gonna go like, oh, whoops, like I, that's totally wrong. Or I forgot <laughs> to include X, Y, Z. And like, I've been doing that a lot more lately where I'm like, just, just wait till tomorrow morning before you send. That's so funny. Um, I've been hanging out with Jesse McInturf, the guitarist for the Bow Band. He's also a film and television composer. He has a private music instruction business you can find at jessemcinturf.com, J-E-S-S-E-M-C-I-N-T-U-R-F-F.com. Awesome. Guys, if you like the show, please uh, subscribe wherever you're listening or watching. And uh, leave me some feedback because, I don't know, this is like the fourth or fifth one I've done. So I really want to know how I can improve or, you know, what you're liking and what you're not liking. Also, if you can financially support me in making all this content, please buy me a coffee at coffeewithbao.com. And um, that's it. We'll see you next time. Thank you so much for having Coffee with Bao. You want to see our beautiful mugs while we chat? Coffee with Bao is also available in video. Just search for it on YouTube and hit the subscribe button.